Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello. For episode eight of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, I'm welcoming Martin Weinstein, who is the uh, leader of Yale Open Labs and doing some amazing work on bringing together a global community to create a global carbon accounting system. Regen Network has been uh, working with Yale Open Labs over the last year or so um, to, for our part, create sort of the uh, the land ledger, the the registry of um, credits uh, that can help keep track of carbon drawdown in an integrated accounting sort of way. Um, and we've been really grateful to be a part of such an innovative. Uh, process. And this conversation with Martin was super fun. Uh, we go pretty deep. And in fact, um, as always, we sort of edge up and even go over into some of the deeper ethical and philosophical quandaries. Um, in this case, delving into understanding the limitations and possibilities of uh, reductionist science and uh, quantitative approaches to sense-making and agreements. Um, and um, I think you're going to enjoy this podcast with Martin. I'm very much looking forward to continuing to work with Martin and Yale Open Labs. Um, and uh, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Bienvenido, Martin. I'm so excited to have you on the show. And we've uh, we just sort of got done with like kind of a breathless uh, roadmap uh, synergizing session. And I'm excited to kind of roll in and um, zoom out a little bit and talk more about your vision of this sort of uh, earth ledger, open earth ledger, and um, just explain to folks, you know, what you're seeing and, and how it's coming together. So thanks so much for being on the show. Gracias, Gregory. It's been a it's been a pleasure uh, since since we've met uh, a year ago to work and conspire and uh, important ideas. Um, and indeed, like you say, um, just thinking in terms of on the ground collaboration and road mapping is uh, is perfect. It's really where what what we're uh, doing on a day to day. But uh, but zooming out and talking about the big picture and what what really connects us all. Is something that I'm I'm always excited to do because that's that's really what drives us, right? Yeah. So you're calling in from your office at Yale, right? And that's right. I'm in New Haven, Connecticut. And um, you've been working there, uh, sort of using that as an incubator for this um, open climate initiative. Do you want to explain a little bit about the vision there and and what's sort of just what's moving? Yeah, so um, yeah, I've been here over, I think, two years now. Um, the the first sort of kind of need and vision that that I had that was pulling me was the creation of a of a open innovation lab, and that's essentially what's been the the umbrella of what's connected all of my work here. So we started the Yale Open Innovation Lab a year and a half ago, um, which is uh, structured as a partnership between the SCI Center for Innovative Thinking at Yale, where, where my office is, and the Center for Business and the Environment. But also the point of the lab is, is 
is around the thesis that with such pressing and existential global challenges, uh, our biggest issue is not financial, uh, is not political, is around our mindset or, or technological, right? It's, it's really changing our, our mindset. And one, one big one there is our, our you know, attachment to a paradigm of competition as a driver of innovation. And so the Open Lab is really about how can we drive innovation through radical collaboration and how do we address global problems through radical collaboration? So what we do that's very different is, well, absolutely everything we do is, is published under open source licenses um, and Creative Commons. And we really try to be a platform for multi-stakeholders to engage. The lab incubates different projects. Um, they often uh, carry open as part of the word, but, uh, but they're really flexible in terms of how they're uh, designed. And we, what we essentially do is try to look at leverage points in these global challenges by using systems thinking. Um, and then deriving that into uh, design thinking approaches to come up with ideas, then proof of concepts, then real world pilots, and then eventually spin off so that they can uh, take off. Um, we have three projects. One is a virtual reality educational technology platform to understand how energy as a vector really connects. So this is a project you can, uh, you start in a digital campus, you go into the sun, you follow photons, and then you can take the different journeys that photons have. One of the most, the ones that I, I was most excited of being able to design in a virtual reality experience is the transfer of photons into electrons through photosynthesis. So we do cross-scale navigation, like going inside a plant and understanding how the sun is really part of pumping oxygen, uh, sequestering carbon, and at the end of the day, this is the key metabolism that allows us to be here, and this is the main one that we need to tap into. Um, so giving through educational technology uh, and being able to reroute how we understand that what I do here actually affects the macro scale and a micro scale. Uh, that's what the project is about. And then another one is called Open Solar, uh, which is financial technology to um, enable normally complicated contracts to finance community-owned energy, but through contractual automation driven by uh, blockchain smart contracts. So we started actually this in Puerto Rico uh, after Hurricane Irma and Maria as a way of how do we, how do we help in investors around the world help, but also like invest on microgrids that can be owned by communities. Uh, most of the financial innovation drive at solar is, is related to third party ownership mm -hmm. uh, where someone else owns the solar panel, right? Uh, when it comes to community energy, it's, it's a different model. So we wanted to really uh, reinvent the pay to own and the power purchase agreement for the purpose of this. Um, we're now, for example, uh, in our partnership with the Rwandan government, looking at how we do the same thing that we're testing in Puerto Rico, but cross border, right? So how, how do investors from different parts of the world can uh, use a climate bond, for example, as a way to investing in the rural electrification of, of all of the of Rwanda landscape, and then you know uh, also as well with the rest of Africa, uh, integrating off takers of energy through mobile banking and things like that. Uh, totally open source, uh, and it's it's um, it's something that connects into climate finance eventually. The third project, which is 
Um, I think what we, you mentioned, it, it's been taking most of my time this year, uh, fortunately, because I think it's a, it's a very important needed project. Uh, we're calling it Open Climate, but, but we're always very sensitive in namings and branding, even though you know, I like to, to frame things, uh, because I think that project, more than anything else we do, needs to be truly ownerless, and, and at the same time, everyone needs to own it. Um, and it's really about thinking of a global climate accounting system. Uh, there are a lot of, let's say, climate accounting initiatives and registries and greenhouse gas inventories, um, but they're often siloed. Uh, the, the amount of technological underpinning that they have is very low. Um, there is also very little accountability of the amount of pledges that non-state actors have created. So cities, uh, provinces, um, companies, organizations, universities, you know, they're, they're all saying, well, we're going to be carbon neutral by this year, but there's no way of tracking that. Um, there's no way of, of having that find a mechanism to be part of the Paris Agreement itself, to have mechanisms of um, recourse, rewards, incentives. Um, and, and I think that part of that is where, where we've, we've, we originally started when we said Earth Ledger by thinking in terms of how we can use blockchain accounting systems to keep track of the carbon budget because at the end of the day that is also a, a huge accounting um problem that connects us all i mean it's literally the physical amount of greenhouse gases that we can fit into our signal atmosphere uh, before radiative forcing uh takes us over the ledge of 1.5 degree warming uh so it's we've been using this amazing credit card that we've had from planet earth uh and and we are eight years away from busting it out um the credit so, card of uh petroleum extraction and burning yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's it's banking on millions of years of uh trapped uh photosynthesis outcome in the form of carbon carbon uh, bonds <laughs> yep. non-financial bonds but we've really turned them into financial bonds to some extent and we should be using it, and we should have used it 100% to, to, to finance an infrastructure that behaves more like trees in their metabolism. But no, we've just been using it to burn it and, and power our, our system. So, um, and, and the carbon atmosphere, the carbon in the atmosphere is, is the key platform that sh shows how evident this is. So we started with the carbon budget and, and how important it would be to add an accounting system. And I often say, wouldn't it be a lot easier and transparent to manage it if every every flow meter that extracts coil, uh, oil and gas at the upstream level would be publishing to a public ledger, right? Um, and fortunately, and you know, fortunately and unfortunately, um, coal, oil, and gas is managed by a very small amount of organizations called carbon majors. Um, Sixty percent of global historic emissions can be traced to just ninety companies. But that actually makes it easier to be able to track where where hydrocarbons are coming into the system. Um, so, anyways, when we we really thought that it would make sense to explore the junction between decentralized accounting technologies and uh, atmospheric carbon budget management, and then got into the more political side. And by political side, I mean things get really complicated when we bring in our human created political boundaries, the concept of countries, the concept of cities, the concept of a region, the concept of a company. 
these are all synthetic concepts that we came up with, but obviously they're the underpinning of all of our climate agreements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of the geopolitics that has been going around uh, climate for so many years. So that's when things really get complicated, right? Uh, at the physical level of Earth, things are a bit more straightforward. Um, and being in the weeds of like, um, how do we tap into better, more transparent and decentralized systems that help all of those political actors, and even us as individuals, as political climate actors, um, connect. That's what led us to go, not just about carbon accounting, but looking in terms of world uh, actor registries, where all of their greenhouse gas inventories lie, where their pledges lie, um, and their, the action tracking happens the process of certification of climate action through monitoring reporting and verification of those actions um, or mrv uh, the role of a new form of climate markets very different under the paris agreement versus uh the Kyoto protocol um and and we normally look at a much more heterogeneous landscape in terms of climate markets. Kyoto was pretty straightforward. It was very top-down. Paris Agreement, and I think that's one of its biggest powers, is a very bottom-up agreement. But it also leads with everyone's coming up with their own way of doing things. And so that heterogeneity requires a bit more of interoperability, uh, a bit more of thinking in terms of how to create fungibility between climate assets. And when I talk talk about climate assets, I mean um, certified actions and and i include emissions as well there but also mitigation and adaptation uh adaptation is very important and also harder to track mitigation is often we could use a a general currency of 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 carbon displaced or carbon captured adaptation is around you know vulnerability reductions is around increasing resilience um, but it's still essential right for for climate action and being able to also certify adaptation actions because that certification is linked to the last step, which is climate finance, is how do we mobilize capital? Um, so that that obviously, you know, when I I like to do you know system integration and look at all the pieces of the puzzle. So for the last year, I've been kind of spending a lot of time on this, which led us to say we need a global climate accounting system that needs to be ownerless, that needs to be open source, needs to be user friendly, needs to be decentralized. Um, and since earlier this year, we've we've been kind of putting this word out. Um, I think that's been the, also the context in which we've we've originally met, mm-hmm. uh, and and clearly a platform that helps us um, connect and collaborate on on tangible projects and tangible pilots um, at the technological level, but also at the at the narrative, right? Because it's really about how do we reframe the narrative of of being able to create these global tools as part of a digital public good that um, allow us to understand that we are part of the same system and we can have jurisdictional uh, divisions and different mechanisms at each part of the world, but we need to have a single layer that connects us all when it comes to climate at least. Um, so, <laughs> That was a that was a long story of, of how the last bit of what we've tried to do uh, in the get go two years ago. Yeah. So 
That's fantastic. Thank you for that overview. So just to kind of um, orient myself and, and maybe some listeners, you know, how this, this sort of, you know, meta ledger of atmospheric accounting, or, or as I'm actually hearing you talk about it, it's, it's really ends up being beyond atmospheric accounting. It's sort of like a uh, Earth's ledger, really, at the end of the day, because there's other pieces of this that need to be accounted for, adaptation, biodiversity, water, things that are related to, it, it's an interconnected whole. So region network is a piece, like nested in this vision as a uh, platform focused on uh, ecological state, um, land health, uh, natural carbon cycles, biodiversity, water, and, and then there's other pieces of this, which you're describing, which have to do with the ability to ledger um, sort of multiple scales of goals and, and, and geolocate those pledges both uh, and, and stretch between sort of atmospheric carbon removal or drawdown on one side and emissions reduction on the other, you know? So sort of like the, the, the efficiency play and the investment in natural carbon cycles as play and being able to create a dashboard where any citizen or government or corporation can understand at a glance their commitments and how well they're doing with their commitments and the relationship between their commitments and other global commitments so that we actually have the ability in this sort of uh, short time frame that we have as a human civilization to, you know, transform our economy. Is that, is that kind of like, you know, kind of contextualizing it in my world? Is that an accurate? Yeah. I mean, a, a way that I, I describe it, and I think that you were alluding to this is we, we remember, we remind ourselves and everyone the distinction between earth and world, right? Mm -hmm. Earth is, is, is our physical planet. Um, and, and the world is the one that involves a lot of the individuals and the collection of societies, culture. Um, and that's why I said, when you, we bring in the world aspect is where things get a bit more complicated because it's right. not just about the physical planet. National borders um, and, and national yeah, politics yeah. and yeah, yeah. society, and culture, and norms corporate. and laws and, and yeah. all of that. That's part of our world, right? That's the world we've created. Um, it's also the world where we we put all of all other sentient beings in the planet, you know, like force them into be part of to some extent. Um, but but yeah, there is a clear distinction between Earth and and world. So when that's why when we start talking about Earth ledger, um, it's right. That was the really brand sensitivity that that that. You, yeah, I I get you. I'm listening. I'm and I and I still I, we still talk about Earth ledger as being you know, it's simple to understand in terms of how the IPCC structure, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, working group one of, of the IPCC is, is the physical science, right? Is, is independent to what Paris Agreement says, it's independent to countries, it's like, what is the current state of the planet? Working group two is around adaptation and climate impacts, uh, understanding what that means in terms of uh, how it affects our world. And, and, and working group three is mitigation. So when we talk about Earth ledger, it's really about working group one and having consensus about what's the state of the planet. And I think the core 
the core work that you guys do at the Regen Network really, really taps into that foundational ledger, that foundational layer, sorry. Um, because it's like, let's, let's agree of what the physical planet uh, and what the ecosystem state is right now. And obviously, you know, you'd think that we would have this clear, but there was still a lot of, you know, discussion uh, and a lot of people still don't, uh, still don't incorporate the facts of, of science and the facts of the state of, of planet Earth. Well, and even within the scientific community, right? I mean, uh, this, is, this is an important piece to explore more, which is, you know, how do we, what, what do we need to create consensus about? You know, do we need to have sort of like a global consensus about, you know, the, the state of the planet as a whole or, or to what degree, you know, to, to what level of certainty do we need, do we need to agree? Or... I tend to think what we need to have consensus about is how we, um, I guess, report on claims. I, you know, it's like the fundamentals of science. What was your method for making a claim about ecological state and can it be replicated? And, and having good hygiene about that and not getting caught up, sort of not getting caught up on the who's right or wrong with the biogeophysical modeling and other things, but just saying like what we need is tools for um, really great scientific hygiene about claims and models and data collection so that that can be ledgerized so that things can be replicated so that we can have what we can have consensus about is sort of like the, you know, the, the statistical significance that we're operating in you know it's like people will have people will be able to kind of disagree with nuances based on their their specialization their focus their their life experience but can agree on this sort of like you know kind of protocol layer and and i think that's in some way that's the essence of what i'm attracted to and what the open climate mm. initiative is is inviting people mm. into which is the opportunity to be focused on that. How do we communicate and interoperate and coordinate without getting lost in this sort of like the details of this argument? Because boy, that sort of seems like what the climate movement, the climate movement has been arguing over these details for years and, and less focused on this sort of like this set of tools, which I think only be, it only becomes um, clear that we need a different set of tools when, as you noted at the very beginning of, of this conversation, when you start to shift your paradigm, instead of competing about who's right about the, you know, biogeophysical reality and how close we are, how many years we have, you know, how many parts per million and da 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 da. Um, um, if we're cooperating together to, to optimize collective intelligence instead of competing about who's right, all of a sudden, we actually increase our precision and accuracy in making claims as a group, in a way. It's very, it's a paradox. A absolutely, um, yeah. And um, I mean, you, you, you framed it as like having consensus of what's the, what are the, what are the measurements and what are the methodologies applied for anything? And that actually reminds me of how, uh, how science works in, in, in the lab. When I was working at wet labs as a more electromicrobiologist or things like that back in maybe 10 years ago, I had a lab notebook 
and I have to I had to record all of my measurements and I had to record my assumptions and at the end of a specific period basically when I finished the notebook I needed a colleague to go through it and sign it uh, and that notebook needed to stay within the lab so there was always this uh, agreed protocol of, of being able to because out of that comes your scientific findings and your publications uh, it's like show me how you came to that answer and in some sense we can do an analogy of that lab notebook a good hygiene lab notebook for how we come up with um, you know our our statements about uh, state of the earth at the macro level that that's been part of let's say working group one of the ipcc is like what's the state of of, of climate of physical science of the climate and that is the collection of everyone working on this at the scientific level and then consensus at the global scientific board um but then what i think you guys also bring in is consensus of that at the micro level or, or let's say you are looking at what's the state of a specific patch of land in this specific part of the world right now and how can we track that over time so that if you keep that clear empirical evidence data from remote sensing and devices that follow physical parameters of inputs and outputs which is what sensors do um and the assumptions and the methodology is well recorded um you you can build on that and if if there is some possibility of improvement later on it could still be it still go back to to that entry and say well you know you can adjust it for this that you didn't consider at that time exactly and and it'll it'll adjust itself yeah exactly i mean yeah i think our theory our theory of change in that is that but then there's also consensus around there's also consensus around um what everyone said they're going to do and um consensus around the state of how we're accounting things and hmm. double accounting obviously is a is a big issue within the climate world and it just happened to be one of the key aspects that uh blockchain came in to solve for digital currencies to emerge with yeah. which was part of bitcoin's uh, first work is, is solving double counting um and um and that problem is not so much at the earth level, but it's definitely at the world level, right? It's like you are counting it at the company that's developing the project. You are counting it at the region in which it's done. You're counting it at the country level and at the individual level. And it's like, well, that's, that doesn't, that doesn't help. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Well, so actually I want to, um, We've been sort of, I think what we've been talking about in a nutshell is some sort of like, um, you know, epistemological layer of what it, what it, what it, what we need as a um, civilization, like how we generate knowledge is important and building tools that in like grow our capacity to be um, clear about the how of, of knowledge generation and make that accessible is really important. So I actually want to dig in a little bit more on that. Uh, you know, are you familiar with the work of um, Charles Eisenstein? Yes. So how does it strike you when he sort of says, in a nutshell, and I'll paraphrase, um, it quantifying 
everything and having a, a, a precise empirical approach to knowledge generation is as much of the problem as anything else is. And the revolution has to be from our hearts and we have to learn to love each other and earth again. And mm -hmm. um, I think he's making some sort of claim about the, that it's problematic or even impossible to generate that sense of love from sort of like a, a you know, in quotes, rational empirical uh, stance in things. And so I'm just curious, I mean, what, what, uh, what kind of chord does that strike for you? And, and yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's uh, extremely powerful. And it's also part of the kind of the next scientific revolution that we need to embark on. And I don't think that there's anything better to help us get on board with it than how Mother Earth is signaling back to us in terms of what's, what's happening. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we, I mean, and I, and I think that probably um, Charles alludes to this in, in his books, but we come from a long history of reductionism and, and through the last uh, decades and how our economic and financial system evolved, we've driven even more uh, connected to that reductionism uh, to competition as a driver of, of economic development and innovation. And that just fuels our illusion of separation. And, and it's really that illusion of separation that is getting us to where we're at is this, this first notion that we are separate from nature or we're separate from planet earth and that comes all back all the way back to our colonial periods of having to take control of the savages take control of planet earth this is this is resources there for us to take and we're still we're still on that paradigm in many sense and um whilst it's it's a delicate balance because we were talking just now about the importance of having consensus around empirical data um, metrics um, the reinventing the how we do that needs to needs to help us um, strengthen the why which is at the end of the day we are part of a single system and we are we are exterminating ourselves from it. And uh, we need to really behave as a global civilization. So we do need these global consensus tools. Uh, and and the, the part of what you describe uh, in that phrase is like, we need to be able to bring in the generation of knowledge from non necessarily quantitative things and qualitative things and, and, and the notion of love, which is part of really means unity and the, the sense of unity, the sense of being part of the same thing is really what is at stake here is we need to understand that there is no difference between us and the planetary system. We are an extension of it. Hmm. So what we do to it, we do to ourselves. Our physical body is wired to self-protect itself. If, if you put fire to a part of your body, your body's gonna react. It, it has the feedback mechanisms to protect itself. Um, the planet as well, but but we're not sensing because there's a lot of filters in the process of when we do something to the planet that it sends the feedback back to us. There's such degree of latency that we don't realize that we're doing it to ourselves. Mm. Um, 
And we obviously now see it with impacts with how currently there's, there's fires all over California, no surprise. Um, this happens all every year and even more and more. When I used to live in, in Australia, this was the same thing. It was just part of the same feedback mechanism. It's just the latency is, is longer, but we're part of the same body. And it's, it's really part of that consciousness of how deeply interconnected we are and, and how we are not separate in some sense that we need to bring that mindset to our science. Um, because science also has been able to tell us that things are not necessarily separate the way we see it um, at the quantum level, right? Um, and, um, and I think that that's in, in essence what we've, what I've set out to try to bring in a bit of more of a, um, and, and Eisenstein talks about the, the spiritual side of money. Um, I thought it was important to bring the spiritual mindset to science because spirit is the non-local self, the, that, that self that connects us all. Uh, we can see it that way, or at least we can frame it that, that way. Um, and, and that's what can, like the emphasis on collaboration rather than competition and to knowledge generation and scientific development. And the big part of that is that what gets us attached to the paradigms of competition, the illusion of separation, is a strong attachment to our egos. So what is also at stake is that we need to break down our severe attachment to our egos, and, and it's really feeding into our individual insecurities. And, and the great thing about it is that we're all part of it. You probably can see it as in the individual level. I mean, I, I don't, there's not a single day that goes by that I don't see my ego doing good things and bad things to, to my day-to-day and my own personal evolution. So I have my, my duty there, my homework there. And, and egos are not just in the individual, they're also at the institutional level, right? And I deal with this, um, as you can imagine, on a daily basis when trying to you know, uh, operate a highly collaborative project from, from a, a, a really large and old institution like, like Yale, it's older than the United States, um, but also with very other large stakeholders. Institutional egos are, are very important or like there's a lot of attachment there and often get on the way of collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I'm also happy to say that, you know, we've in the two years that I've been at this, at this quest found so many folks at, at, at these institutions that really understand that and uh, really are trying to work on how do we transcend that and how do we take the opportunity of these global existential um, challenges to help us make those shifts at the individual level and at the institutional level. Yeah, um, it reminds me of um, kind of a, a concept that I'm familiar through from the work of um, Gurdjieff around sort of the fourth way and capital W work, or that is to say that one uh, develops and evolves one's self or selves <laughs> as a human and, you know, the the ego, um, having a healthy relationship with ego, whether that's in some schools of thought, that's like disillusion and others, it's, it's like more of a, um, you know, just sort of like in its right place because it does a bunch of good things as you were noting, but sort of like in right relationship, w- we work on ourselves through working on these bigger systems, societal challenges. And the two are interrelated. We cannot achieve 
I sort of, I oftentimes hear people say, ah, you have to work on yourself first and then you'll change the world. I don't remember where that sort of meme comes from, but I think what I'm hearing from you and what I, I tend to experience as true is we have to work on both at the same time. We have to work on our individual yeah. and our communities and we have to work on this sort of like the highest system level that we can conceptualize. How are we in service to that? And, and in Absolutely. Way, it's, it's a transformative crucible. It's not easy, but it's... Uh, no, it's and, and absolutely. And I think the reason is, uh, the, the way I often describe it, is that we don't have an easy way, when we really think about it, of like where does self stops and something else begins. And I spent a lot of, you know, several years while, while I was doing my doctoral work on the role of uh, corporate law within climate change and, and the role with, with, that it has within carbon majors. Um, and, and some of the problems with the current uh, paradigms and locking effects of, of maximizing self-interest. Yeah. And through all these, those years working on that, um, it came back to part of my own um, kind of spiritual insights that really the problem is not maximizing self-interest is who is the self that is that is acting and that is where consciousness becomes very elastic is it my physical body is it my immediate family is it my the attachment that i have to my favorite band my favorite football team my my country things that we're willing to die for right um yeah but it's but then how do we extend that self towards understanding that we're part of, of the planet? So if we work on ourselves before working on those macro things, we are automatically telling us that we are not that macro system. And if we work on the big planetary problems, but not working with ourselves, we're not again, we're we're forgetting that we're linked. Mm. So we need to work in both because at at the most important level, there is no difference between both. And I think that's also what astronauts can tell when they come out in space and look back and they're like, oh my God, we're just all part of this little blue speck. Uh, we're part of the same thing. Hmm. So it's, and that's the key that we need to work on on day to day. It's like understanding that I am part of that and that is part of me and, and it has to work in sync. It's extremely hard. Uh, but that's also what we're here to do. And so in, in a nutshell, this, um, this technological endeavor that you and I are both on and many others, it seems to me it has to do with, we're sort of building, I don't know, uh, an autonomic nervous system or, a, um, or, or some sort of training wheels for some, you know, I, I like to think maybe there was a, pre-existing now vestigial organ of perception that likely was cultural. You know, I think it's probably collective organ, not like a sensory organ that I as an individual has, but like a tribal kind of organ mm. where, you know, I think I, I, some of the meaning making I have is like, you know, tribally or in groups, we can create sort of a, a transcendent ritualized connection with the whole that we're, that we're nested within. And, I think that that's a part of how societies formed um, in the past. And there is some way in which I think, you know, despite all of the, um, or, or because of, or 
paradoxically unified with the, 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 the technology and science that my perception is, the technology and the science that you're working on, that I'm working on, that Versus is working on, that Switch is working on, that so many people around the world, uh, people in the Climate Change Coalition, is in fact sort of this striving to reunify human perception, like to, to I don't know, myelinate the, 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 mm. the perception, to improve the connection of perception so that it achieves sort of like a, uh, yeah, like, like you said, like we can actually feel that fire and we can react in a short enough time, right. time frame that, that we can tune our actions and our society to what's real. You know, to, to what's yeah, real. And, and, and we could, by connecting that, we could uh, agree to set out these smart contracts that create this uh, fast reaction in our systems. Uh, and uh, so, so I, I, I often think about, you know, smart contracts as a possibility of saying, like, we, in the same way that our body has all these smart contracts, it, it, you put fire, it will react. It's, it's wired to do so. But we did not wire certain things in our social system that can connect, you know, our, our actions so that they are always in the best interest of a healthy planet. We can do that. And so it does start with very basic foundational layers of keeping track of records, keeping track of state. So there is consensus there. And then we start building a lot of these. And, and at the same time, the mechanism so that it's not just a single, a single entity, like a single system, but one that's combined by other different systems, just like the body is as well. So right. uh, that is relevant. That's why we see the, the, the climate project as, what we need to build is the platform of platforms. It's something we, we, we cannot say, you know, if everything that you're working on or everything that already is in, in place with, with uh, the current legacy climate accounting systems, we don't have to replace them with something new. We, we need to bring in a, a layer that helps integrate them together so that they can speak the same language, right? And that we are just building it so that eventually we have a system that really integrates um, everything because i think everyone agrees we need that so one more maybe provocative question here um what you know if we're dealing with a living a complex living system and we're dealing with consciousness and on some we even have love on the table now um mm -hmm. what prevents our approach from being mech overly mechanistic and sort of creating an automated system that is dumb and, and destructive through its stupidity. Like where does consciousness enter? How, where does living complex dynamic, um, uh, yeah, where does complexity and life enter into this? Yeah, I love that question. And I think that you're really asking that that's a, that's the right question to ask um and it's also part of um when we get together to work on these things things that we need to bring in the table right uh because we cannot cannot do this with a techno fix right um it's not you know we're just going to create the system that uses iot uh, ai and blockchain and smart contracts and then that's it um no uh they're 
there there is a sense of of how to we definitely cannot build a system that does not have self healing uh potential that does not have the power to uh evolve um and often we've created uh, entities our legal system that have too much lock in that don't have the capacity to collapse and recreate so uh a good way of thinking through this is how complex adaptive systems behave collapse at certain levels of a complex adaptive system is actually part of its resilience at a macro level our cells are constantly dying um and yet us as a macro organism are still you know in 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 instability um so we really need to bake in the capacity of nested complexity and nested systems that have that are susceptible to collapse and and they don't have necessarily attachment to say like to form uh and that's from a very let's say theoretical standpoint is like how how would the system be designed well it should be designed how nature is designed and 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 that's often how nature works is it mostly is just large nested complex adaptive systems that are constantly in in a process of creation and destruction mm. uh expansion and collapse and contraction um so as above so below we need to think about how to design uh our healthy climate management system in that way um how to operationalize that i think that is where we need to do a whole bunch of collaborations around and i know that we haven't talked about that um and to to on on the technical level right and i i I like the idea of being able to have you know contracts that are not deterministic that purely say like if this then action that that have the capacity to go back to humans and say what's what's here here like what where where does your heart uh, where's your heart uh, telling you to to go and decentralized governance um can help that right So um it's it's kind of like a, I'm going to take a, a side approach to this but we we we're working on financial technology for securitized investments and often what we hear is from regulations like the security exchange commission they're not comfortable with the issuer of a bond or a security to once it releases has no control of it uh, because it's just purely governed by smart contracts And so I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, well then we need to make sure that within our contracts there's possibility of saying, all right, you know, the the process has to stop here. It needs to tap into the humans and the parties involved so that they have some of the best governance mechanism that we have, which is sitting down and having a dialogue." Right. And then, and then and then those people have a digital signature that says we've deliberated and Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And 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 so a part of that uh non-mechanical thing is part of the human dialogue is how we communicate and how we communicate also in person which is so different than than anything else because we don't just communicate with words and text right um particularly when we have feelings involved and it's our feelings that are driving us our decisions mm. uh so that's just one you know one aspect at the technical level but then i think that the second part is the outcome of it has to come from a place of love and collaboration because 
if you don't come from a mindset of that, you're probably going to create a machine that doesn't have it, mm. which is why what I always say is we don't, the most important thing is not to innovate like on the technological level, not to innovate our climate accounting system. It's just like how we build it. It's the how where we put our energy that needs to crystallize the right mindset and consciousness that is creating, that is, it, that is uh, enacting in that creation. And so, which is why, um, and I, a couple of days ago, I had a, a, a talk about this. And at the end, I said, the problem about this system, the, climate, the open climate system, is that we can't build it. Because we definitely can't do it within our humble lab here with uh, our very motivated and brilliant students and partners, et cetera. We need to find a way for us to all build it together, right. um, which is why throughout the year we were thinking about how do we organize a new type of event, uh, an event, in, and we are seeing the, the power of collective masses with, with collective strikes, and the New York Climate Week was an example of that. People are getting contagious about the need of, of, of reacting. That is part of the neuronal system that we have that earth is speaking to us and people are going out in the street of saying we're feeling it yeah um uh well one our proposal on like how to build it is through a collabathon which is what we call a combination of people hacking and building at something together but not through a mindset of competition we do hackathons all the time here at yale and at mit and it's always like well teams get together and they compete against each other the winner takes all most of the code is lost. Most of what's built, uh, he pays no attention to. Uh, and it was just a great social event. And it was, just a, it, was, it was just like playing a sport. But with such a massive project and underpinning, we, we can bring in uh, collaboration as the driver where the teams are just building different pieces of the puzzle. And it, I, don't rem I, I think that since the Human Genome Project, we haven't had this degree of of challenge ahead. Uh, in 2001, the Human Genome Project was also set up as a competition. There was a private you know, sprint towards sequencing it, and there was a public uh, effort uh, on it. Um, but the private way was trying to you know, speed to get faster to it, to find any form of patent and commercial opportunity for being able to sequencing it first. Mm -hmm. So the driver there was, was, was probably not ideal. So, if we have to create our climate, you know, genome accounting system, uh, we need to do it from a place of like, there is no room for, I mean, there is healthy competition within a system, but, but not from a place of division, from a place of unity. Uh, and I think that's also part of where we can bring in love to these events, to these social gatherings. That's part of a proposed vision. And it's, it's, it's a seed to put out where, where, um, launching the first instance now in, in November, all the way to, to the UN climate negotiations meetings in December, as a seed for everyone now to keep watering it and taking it to different uh, horizons, right? Yeah, great. Well, um, so the next set of questions that I wanna ask center around that, around the collabathon and sort of creating the right conditions for that. I need to do a bio break. I am, my teeth are swimming. so. Um, if we can pause, all right, um, cool. So 
I want to hear more about the Collabathon, uh, and I want our listeners to hear more about it. I think it's pretty exciting. I also, I think as an entry point, I want to hear a little bit more about your thinking about how you create the conditions where the participants in a Collabathon are starting from the right place starting from that place of connection with a larger whole, of service, of love, of um, asking hard questions. What does it look like to create those conditions to start out a big collaborative effort? How do you approach that? Um, yeah, okay, so I'll, I'll take that as two steps, and one's the vision, and one's like, okay, how do we, how do, we do it? Um, the vision is, uh, like I said before, a, a type of event where you know people around the world are working together a different piece of the puzzle of a macro system to be designed and built that it needs to be built by everyone because it needs to be owned by no one uh, and by everyone at the same time, right? Um, and it's just an, an integrated um, climate accounting system and climate management. Um, we, we, from the get go and doing the integrate system proposal and architecture, we derive different set of prompts, um, prompts and, uh, let's say we can call them bounties of around, uh, aspects of the software technological staff to be, to be developed. Um, Inviting participants, uh, inviting hosts that are um, uh, entities around the world, often universities or institutions that provide a physical space for people to have uh, a go-to spot to work on. Um, and then prompt uh, hosts or prompt owners. In, the, in this case, the prompt hosts are the ones that understand the knowledge of what needs to be built and the from a climate often a climate policy climate knowledge a climate science standpoint um and technological partners um and they need to provide all the right support in terms of background information in terms of open source code in terms of data to participants and then guidance throughout so what we're doing is uh, inviting different partners to host instances of the Collabathon. We're doing a, a one weekend event here in New Haven in our forestry and environment school at Yale, inviting folks obviously from, from the East Coast, um, people from Harvard, people from MIT, all of the universities here in New Haven, University of Connecticut, Southern Connecticut State University. We'd love to have folks coming in from the Columbia Earth Institute as well. Um, and then you, you guys are in Great Barrington, you can come in directly. So we could spend a weekend here, uh, probably doing a version of a small design sprint to figure out what to be built. And then we have two weeks to continue working on it. And it's not really that we have two weeks, it's, you know, it's an open source project. So after that, we can continue working on it. But well, part of it is a bit of a two series of sprints towards the UN uh, climate change meetings in Chile. Uh, it's also a way of like bringing in collective work and collective proposition into these kind of like seminal moments that define a lot of the mechanisms that the world actors are going to play by. Um, so 
the probably the vision is that this instance, this event going running from November 15, 16 to December 6, let's say, um, is a proof of concept of, of, of what, what this could be. Mm. Uh, because perhaps we can engage 80 people uh, to hack here on campus, uh, maybe 60 around the world, uh, maybe more. It really, really depends on how active we are at, at, at communicating this. Um, and then next year, uh, April, Earth Day, we can get 15,000 people. Uh, and, and after that, uh, 150,000 people. Some of the prompts we have are extremely ambitious. It's like a whole platform to simplify the issuance and monitoring of climate bonds for financing. Uh, another prompt is to create automated carbon pricing mechanisms that look at physical state of the planet to derive how, how much value should be placed to a, a cost of these externalities and then derive potential revenues into a collective decentralized fund that has algorithmic decisions on where to deploy capital for vast climate actions you know things that we're probably not going to build you know in november here uh, at yale and uh, the different nodes uh, but if you can think about how to engage 150,000 people with self-organization teams we can build all of this in probably under two weeks that's the that's the power of of, of collective intelligence and collective will that we think is the key technology we need to use um, and it's a technology that we have we just have not been able to use it because most of it has been most of our actions have been driven our competition and trying to you know uh, take credits uh, which is part of what I said before is one of the biggest design challenges is how to make this not feel like it's a Yale event and you're coming here to help Yale University. No, it needs to be the opposite of that. It needs to be what everyone makes out of it. And, and it also needs to be very applicable to the current uh, incumbent uh, politics around climate, which is managed through the UNFCCC process. Uh, but it also needs to be able to act as an alternative system. Um, so that you don't have you don't have to struggle to try to change the current system. You create a new system that makes the, the current one obsolete. I mean that's that's Bug Mr. Fuller's words uh, there that we need to put into action, right? Um, and you know, actually talking about Bug Mr. Fuller, he often talked in some of these uh, books around the concept of the world game, right? Uh, yeah. And, and we really need to bring in some gamification. Sorry, we're right right next to. Uh, um, to the, the the police station we always have these sirens um we um we um we have to think about how do we make this a, an enjoyable social gathering and uh you know world game to build a system that really helps us as a civilization and at the same time you know uh we need to figure out how to bring in, and this goes back to your question around, uh, Charles mentions uh, art in the picture and uh, expression and human expression into it. How to create artivism as maybe a fuel that helps uh, people uh, gather together and work in practical uh, pieces of, of a collective puzzle. At the same time, what that general puzzle is has to be able to mutate throughout the process. So that, that's, that's the vision now, how to do it um, in terms of the, the way you said it is how to get people to come in with the right mindset 
Yeah, how do you generate, I mean, I, I guess, or even, even more so to re, to re-ask it, how do you generate a field or an approach, a field like a morphogenetic field or, or an approach, mm. a shared aim where people are collaborating, you know, um, and striving towards this greater good? How do you think about that? And how are you thinking about that in the lead up to the Collabathon? Yeah, uh, I can tell you how I'm thinking about it now. Um, but I'm also, you know, very aware that I've, um, I'm a bit detached of making sure that, that we do this the right way this first time. It probably won't. <laughs> um, and it needs to be constantly sure. evolving. It'll, it'll, um, yeah, it'll, it'll certainly evolve. For sure, right? But probably that's, that's part of that's probably a principle about how to exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And we talked about this before. We said like the you need to think in terms of a complex adaptive system that has the possibility of self organization, evolvement, mutation, collapse, and reconstruction. Um, so that needs to be there. Uh, I I think that part of what get what the way we, I see this is to be able to communicate the state of our carbon budget, which is a very clear way for everyone to understand, um, understand the, the challenge at stake and understand the capacity that we have with all of the collective expertise to be able to, um, to have a difference. So that if everyone can own that same vision, the and and everyone acts from their own set of purpose then we we will probably find the right starting point i mean that that is part of the starting point is everyone has to tap into their own specific purpose of why why they connect and and that's part of the everyone's dharma let's say like what are we here to do um and so there there needs to be the, the way I think about it a, a, a strong effort around communication of of the problem at stake, the opportunity that it generates, and the beauty of being able to work alongside fellow humans it's it's uh, It's an amazing feeling to be out in a climate strike, uh, feeling that everyone's part of the same body trying to create a single you know yell of of communication. Um, but it might also be a same feeling to be able to be in a, in a spot working together, um, and using our digital and technological power, our collective, uh, knowledge uh, and expertise, uh, so that we can further fuel. And this is part of the feedback loop that it needs to have that we're all in this together. And the more that it can constantly remind us, I think the better it is. Um, but the truth is, to be perfectly honest, you know, I, I run the lab with multiple projects. The Open Climate is one. The Collabathon is a huge endeavor. Uh, and I, I do everything we do with, with the help of our students. And they're having exams and they have, you know, <laughs> you have to go to class on Monday. So I often, you know, realize how overwhelming these, these ideas are for, for them and for myself because the amount of resource that we have is, is always limited. But so I'm often thinking about all the details of running an event and, and, uh, and sometimes forget about what, what's really behind it. And that's also part of my constant work. A, a lot of my work is, involves a lot of mind and, and it needs to 
it needs to involve more body and spirit to it. And that's constant work that they do and try to balance that. Um, but then ultimately what I think I, so far I felt a, a bit of like re relax around, right. Starting it the right way is by saying, well, yeah, the open innovation lab can help kickstart the instance this year, but this is not our event and we're just the stewards of it. And this is also part of the key paradigm that we need to change is we need to emancipate ourselves from this notion of ownership to notion of stewardship. And that applies to everything. Um, you know, I've explored a lot of this in the context of, like I said before, coal, oil and gas and carbon majors, like who actually owns that credit card of millions of years of, of trapped photosynthesis, uh, you know, who owns the atmosphere of this planet? No, we need to understand ourselves as stewards of it. All right. So perhaps we could just by framing us as like, we're just stewards for this year and helping kickstart it. Uh, I'm sure everyone will hopefully resound to that and, and the right stewards step up and then next year can be taken over by other folks or the collection of folks, not just one single entity, but, but multiple ones. Um, in the same way that we've uh, started to frame the Open Climate Project as an open innovation consortium um, that will work on it for the first phases um, to incubate it, to uh, usher all the right efforts in the right direction, but then release it, right? And it's, that's also part of the process of birth and natural systems is that we need to be able to kind of bring in the seed, nurture it by the end of 2020 or 2021, um, being able to release it as a new type of entity. And I think that we also have like a year and a half as a responsibility. The blockchain community has a very good, good position to think about is, is that how do we truly have a global decentralized and autonomous uh, system? Um, that's not just designed to make money. It's designed to govern, to, to, to be a mechanism for earth system governance. We don't really have a true robust mechanism for earth system governance. Right. And um, I, I think, you know, I'm interested in your thinking about this, but it, you know, and what are the roles of markets and um, when, where are the potential profit centers that can, you know, drive adoption and investment in a decentralized way so that you don't necessarily have to wait or ask for permission. Sort of, it needs to be, it seems like there's three pillars. One is you have to identify the sort of market case and the, the case for innovation and entrepreneurship. And, um, and two is you need to be able to um, interoperate with and connect with as a new and independent system, the legacy systems. Right. And three is you need to be able to unleash the collective intelligence of a vast collaborative network of, you know, of actors, agents who are just like who know that they want to do it and have something to contribute. And all three of those somehow have to come together in the next year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I like I like how you were breaking down those pillars. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's that's the right approach. Um, market is, I, I would say it's very important and it's very important to think, when I say like as a system that's not designed to maximize, you know, like to, to make money, it needs to be able to enable 
other folks and other apps and other entities and other platforms to operate market mechanisms, right? So, and that's part of the nature of open source projects is they need to be enabling platforms. Often I struggled with this when, when we talk to conventional, you know, corporate uh, culture that understands open source as just the epitome of value capture because the, you know, we are, we're, we've been trained to understand that only proprietary software and proprietary knowledge is what we can derive funds um, and, and value from. But no, um, this is an enabling platform where market mechanisms, uh, profitable projects can be built on. And in fact, the key thing that we need to show is that it's in everyone's economic interest as well. If it, so if you're thinking only from an economic standpoint, this needs to make sense to you no matter what. But, but the system does not need to uh, foster that type of, of, of thinking as the driver. It needs to come from a different place so that it, you can start with that, but it actually changes you in the process. It, it has to be to backwards compatible. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Um, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for like, the only way we can do this is if we forget about profit altogether. Um, and, and, and again, it goes back to self-interest and who is the self. Um, but um, the, there is the possibility for the integrated system to actually open up to a global market where, you know, an organic, uh, some of the things that you guys do, organic, you know, agriculture in, in a village in Ecuador that's doing cocoa sustainably can actually be part of a global market, which actually affects, it, it helps the profitability of that project, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and that is enabled by the global platform. It's only enabled if there is a, 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 an ability to account for the public good generated by that, that approach to right. forestry in that case. Yeah. 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 So in that sense, we, and, and that's part of my, my when, I, when I talk directly to the corporate world, uh, is, is seeing that vision as well, is, is, is being able to understand that as part of the global um, climate trade mechanism as well. I mean, Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, I don't think we've talked about much about this, is a key aspect that, that also um, informs a lot of our efforts, is how can parties, 186 ratified countries, 195 parties, um, help each other collaborate to meet their nationally determined contribution, um, Article 2 and 3, in a transparent way, Article 13, um, and we can understand how to involve non-state actors into those state-based initiatives through uh, the collaboration happens through the international transfer mitigation outcomes. So that means if a private actor uh, developed a, a sustainable project that has provable mitigation outcomes in, in a region in Ecuador, and Ecuador agrees to foster maybe that, that's, that uh, action, that mitigation outcome can be traded to Paraguay that maybe needs, needs that action for its NDC. Or, or to put it in more simple ways, a couple years ago when I was doing my PhD, we were involved in creating a bilateral institution called the Energy Transition Hub, and it connected Australia with Germany. And it, it is currently, 
acting as this bilateral initiative, and its and its essence is, uh, Germany has an you know a long history of technology around uh, low carbon tech and uh, renewable energy, but it doesn't have a lot of natural resource. Australia has unlimited natural resource in terms of renewable energy. like vastly so the, the logic there is how can you make australia a country like australia export mitigation outcomes use german technology and create that degree of, of trade so that's a good example of an international transfer mitigation outcomes is germany says well we have the finance we have the technology it's just that within our jurisdiction we just don't have the sun and the wind let's go to australia let's build concentrated solar thermal and wind turbines and then transfer those mitigation outcomes to us and in the process, guess what? You've got jobs in Australia, you've got infrastructure in Australia, you've got a whole economic development happening in that country, and Germany is exporting a lot of its know-how. And that's just an example of how these things could happen, let alone as soon as we start thinking around evolution of the conventional clean development mechanism that integrated more developed countries with less developed countries. Um, because in the same sense, um, the Brazil Amazon is not owned by Brazil. It's it's a, it's an asset for the world. It's a world line. So uh, obviously Brazil as a par party has a big stake at this and actually an important role in the politics of Article 6 and, and the next stock take. Um, but we need to make sure that it's also in, in Brazil's best economic interest to preserve the Amazon and is able to, if they agree, uh, other countries finance that and use that for their accounting. I think that's a key statement is we need to figure out how to align the interest of actors with ecological uh, sustainability, ecosystem health. You know, without that, you know, it's, just, it's going to be very difficult if there's always a perverse um, incentive between the economic outcome and the ecological outcome that we're seeking. Yeah, yeah, and, and understanding that intersection of uh, macroeconomics that countries often is sometimes the only language that they speak <laughs> and um, and climate value and the Paris Agreement, which is regulation and policy to their lens. Right. Um, so that's that's been a part of the inspiration of of also the work because you know article six is the one most important article that hasn't been fleshed out and there is expectation that's going to be a key part of of this next um uh climate negotiation instance in chile and most of what i get from other folks the feeling is that it's probably not going to be the mechanism is not going to be designed and defined this instance because at the same time next year is the first stock take year which means that within the Paris Agreement, what's baked in is every five years, all actors have to you know, report their, their, their track and increase their ambition of their nationally determined contribution. And that is a mechanism itself that needs to be tested for the first time. And hopefully it doesn't take away from the effort of what needs to be done, which is also defining Article 6. Because I think as soon as we do that, we're able to design a mechanism for countries, again, in their standard way of thinking, to see the great opportunity, economic opportunity at stake. 
and see, you know, I, I'm from Argentina. Argentina, just like Australia, has unlimited renewable energy potential. Um, we have some of the areas of the world with the most amount of uh, sun, uh, with the most amount of wind, uh, and an amazing amount of gravity through the Andes, and, and uh, a whole green solar panel, which is the Pampas and, and all the area. We've been, we've, we've been now being clouded by the fact that we also have uh, non-conventional gas. But, but that's been a, a very bad, sort of, um, let's say, uh, distraction, because we need to think about how do we become you know, see countries as renewable energy superpowers, if you want to think it in traditional, you know, coal, oil, and gas terms. Mm-hmm. The, the point that makes countries like Argentina, Brazil, Australia, being the Middle East of, of, the, of the clean tech revolution, because they just have a lot of the natural resource. But at the same time, bringing in the concept of from ownership to stewardship, saying like, because of that, you need to be able to help foster that and understand that everyone can participate on that. So people come in, bring finance, develop the projects, and the mitigation outcomes can be traded. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's part of the, that, that global picture as well. Well, so I know we're sort of getting up to, um, up past the um, time we've got on our calendar. I have one last, um, if, if you're willing, I have one last question, and I'd love it. Um, I've always been struck by your ability to um, kind of articulate the numbers of all of this, you know, the, the atmospheric um, carbon imperative in, in a nutshell, in the numbers. I've seen you sort of present that a couple of times, you know, how much we need to reduce emissions, how much we need to draw down over, you know, and I, I know it's usually, it's nice to have a, a graphic to, to go with this, but, um, you know, I'd love it if you, if you don't mind just giving our listeners like a quick breakdown of like, hey, everybody, here's our budget. This is like in broad strokes, here's the carbon budget over the next, you know, whatever it is, 50 years. What, what's, what, what's, what are we looking at here? Um, yeah. How much are we overdrawn with our credit cards? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, let me, let me state in, in some sense credit um, uh, why you know, carbon budget was also, has also been very a, a useful narrative because it's also a story um, for me. Is when I was doing my PhD, uh, the director of the college where I was uh, is one of the lead authors uh, in carbon budget calculation, and and a lot of the the main authors today are are also good friends of mine. And I'm thinking Malte Meinshausen, uh, Yuri Royal. Um, they're the, the 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 scientists that are behind being able to calculate the way the budget is calculated is. Um, we, you know, first we we understand the the physical science of radiative forcing and how much greenhouse gases has a direct effect on average temperature, and um, we look at a global historic emissions after the industrial revolution, and the the effect of that anthropogenic emission into average temperature rise. They're around zero point ninety eight degrees. Uh, of average temperature rise since the industrial era. Um, 
And it's another group of people that are the climate scientists or the, the climate system scientists that's, that, that derive the calculation that says, you know, past 1.5 degrees because of feedback loops, because of its effect on the poles, its effect on multiple different things, um, we're already crossing a tipping point. Oh my God, you're drinking mate. <laughs> I'd, I'd give you the first. I'd give you the first drink, but uh, it doesn't. I don't know if the listeners. Like I don't. Yeah. I don't think listeners can see this, but but being an Argentinian that drinks yerba mate the traditional way, looking at Gregory drinking it from a real gourd is. It's. I, I have it almost like a tear coming down my my eye. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Um, so the, um, the calculation of budget is defined by saying, okay, well, we, we pump into the atmosphere collectively around 40 gigatons, uh, a bit over that now, uh, of CO2 equivalencies. That's CO2 and methane and different other nitrogen-based gases. Uh, they're extremely powerful as well. Um, and that's anthropogenic, meaning that's not part of the natural cycle as well. Um, and then we have to calculate the emission trajectory that is consistent with a 1.5 degree target, right? And, and so from 40, the emission trajectory collectively uh, is basically taking us to zero emissions, zero net emissions by 2050. And, and not just that, from there it goes negative towards 2100. Um, and at the same time, the carbon budget is derived by the area that is under the line of the global, the current uh, global emissions and the trajectory that's consistent with 1.5. That number currently um, looks, looks at, uh, and, and, and I just pulled up uh, the MCC carbon budget calculator, which kind of makes this, this is very easy. The, the CO2 budget lapped at 345 gigatons of CO2. Uh, and basically... We have that we, much to, to emit, basically. Yes. After um, that, you know, we busted the 1.5 degree uh, target. If we... And we're doing 40 gigatons a year currently. Just 345 gigatons. And, and we're right? doing 40 gigatons. So we have 345 left and we're doing 40 a year currently, and we're still increasing, correct? We're still increasing at like 10% a year or something? Or well, well, yeah, we're increasing, but the point is that 2020 needs to be the historic peak emission year. That means that us, our kids, and next generations need to look back to the year 2020 and remember it as the year that never again there's been that much greenhouse gases pumped in a single year. So 2021, we need to go down. Which also, I get really excited because that means that there's never been a better time to be, there will never be more atmospheric carbon than there is in 2020, which means there's, there's never, you will never be able to be more efficient in sequestering it via photosynthesis than 2020, which means, <laughs> That if you're trying to make an economic play to, <laughs> to use natural processes to bring carbon out of the atmosphere and into robust, healthy agroecosystems, right. now is the time, folks. Now is the time. It will never get better. 
Right, 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 right. I, no, that's a, that's, a, that's a good point. So we said 345 gigatons, if we look at a 1.5 degree scenario, the two degree scenario, it's, it looks more like a thousand gigatons. Um, so it's a huge difference, which is why the Paris Agreement was so important to say to commit to efforts below 1.5 degrees. And the reason why that is, is because 1.5 degree increase already etches into the well-being of most of the developing countries that are mostly exposed by this, right? A lot of the well-developed industrialized countries can probably deal with a two-degree world, but not countries like Tuvalu, right? Um, their, their highest peak is one meter above ocean level. Yeah. Um, Sri Lanka. So, so we're like, you know, if, if we don't stop in eight years, we've busted out our, our, our budget, right? Um, uh, which, which is super scary. Um, but it also reminds us, and, and, you know, my experience getting into all of this was when I was a college student and I was uh, studying astrobiology, like how life evolves in, in, in this planet and other planets. It just helped me see the planet as, a, as an organism at four and a half billion years and how microdynamics at the organ, microorganism level affects macrodynamics at the atmospheric level. Um, since then, I realized because of the numbers that we've pumped into the system, it was our generation that was going to have to live this, which also means this is the most exciting time to be alive. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's right now and it's, and it's us that we have to take a stand and say, well, I think there's a limit about what we can do to, to our planet. It's the best planet in the solar system. There's no doubt about that. I mean, <laughs> Mars sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so might as well, you know, fight the bullet and, and make this one work. Right. Um, so, and, and it's, yeah. it's beautiful to see that, that we're, you know, we're alive to it. And it's, it is nothing more inspirational to help us do our own personal transformation because that's what we've talked about in the last couple of hours is that that you know planetary and, and world system transformation needs to go alongside our individual transformation our spiritual transformation our psychological transformation and so i think there's this huge blessing in disguise where you know our our our, our planet and our our natural mother is sending back the perfect opportunity for us to bring in the probably the most important tool of resilience, which is to behave as a cohesive uh, uh, planetary civilization. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise known as grow the fuck up. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. You're you you are playing on a playground that you just you can't sustain. Yeah. Um, so so grow up. Right. And. Um, and that's that's part of that's that's part of what we're also here to do. So it's it's our purpose, right? And how do we align our purpose in this life with with how we relate to the fact that we've we've started with a global globalization in our markets, our economy, but also the digital world can help us, you know, have more direct connection with the globalization of of the mind and of our of our our spirit in that sense. Um, Beautiful. Hopefully that that's that's basically where the numbers really can help us think is is this is not something we have much leeway on and this is something that you know almost every day we need to think about this or feel it uh, and find ways of aligning it with with what it means to our our purpose here um, in this life. Yeah, yeah, it's a really powerful 
uh, wake-up call. It's a really powerful forcing function, um, an initiation moment for humanity and, and each of us as individuals. So, um, Martin, I'm super grateful for your time. I don't want to eat into the rest of your Saturday. Um, I know how precious uh, weekends are for, you know, body and spirit refreshing. And I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to to chat. It's been a fantastic conversation. And I'm really excited about the Collabathon coming up. And um, yeah, excited to be working by your side to, to make the world a better place. Thank you so much. And, I, and, I, and I'm very glad that we had this, this conversation that gave us the opportunity to really think around how holistic our, our mindset needs to be. Um, and why we need to bring in this to everything we do and and the possibility that we for the next year we have all these instances to be able to put it in action is 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 great and it's it and it's all you know this can be very overwhelming uh this whole problem and and i know for a lot of you know different generations and people they just find it so overwhelming they don't even know where to start you know mm -hmm. to the point that's just like block it yeah right climate change is real but I, I can't do anything. I'm just going to worry on my car and my house and whatever and my kids' education. Um, but when you start, you know, connecting with allies and realizing that we're not alone, yeah. um, and and eventually we need to work all together, then there's a huge uh, boost of, uh, of of confidence and optimism. That's right. We can, together we can do this. You know, uh, alone will fall and together we'll stand. And yes. Um, yeah, my, my, my mother-in-law actually talks about the fact that optimism in that can be the direction of saying, like, we can do this. But it's also outrage that can be the fuel for us to do it. Because there is a degree of outrage that we need to have about the fact that we've put ourselves in our situation. And we're, we're also, you know, putting this to the inheritance of all future generations. Yeah, and I think, you know, like Greta and the sunrise movement and some of the other sort of youth movement extinction rebellion um are all sort of speaking to that and igniting that um which is uh it's very exciting i think you know it's um because it's going to take that outrage and that awareness but it's also going to take just some like precise detailed complex subtle cooperative work <laughs> like like you know where you have to kind of be able to sit down and have a calm conversation and, you know, chart a roadmap and, uh, you know, dig into that. It, it's, it's interesting. And I, I think you summed it up well. There's never been a more exciting time to have been born. And, mm. uh, you know, I'm just thinking, I'm just leaving this conversation just with a lot of gratitude and, and I'm pretty fired up. I'm like, fuck yeah, this, <laughs> this, is, this is what it's all about. You know, we've got eight years to do this. Let's make it happen. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I want to show, I guess, you know, current sort of natural, conservative natural climate solution um, numbers are that, you know, we can take about 30% of that, uh, you know, a 30% chunk out of, um, you know, annual emissions, basically, or 30% of the way. You can think about it different ways. 30% of the way towards that, you know, um, gigaton or one trillion tons that one trillion ton um, challenge that we have. Yes. Um, I think we can do more than that. So that's what, that's what I'm fired up about. I think you get amazing dynamic land stewards and beautiful agroecosystems that are diverse. You can just use photos and photosynthesis to just pump carbon right into the soil and 
you know, um, and, and that frees up so much leeway and so much energy for yeah. people. For being, um, yeah. 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 And we need that because, you know, net zero to 2050 is not the end of the game. It needs to be negative all the way to 2100. And negative is not an easy thing to have. Uh, That's right. We need to become net, net, net drawdowns. Um, and a couple of days ago, I had like, different ideas on, you know, you see every time you, you look at an eco city conference, all right. the, all this, all the skyscrapers that they show are covered in green stuff. Well, <laughs> you know, we always put that there, but when you actually talk with, you know, like, the biggest issue is like, how do we finance that? Because it's, it's, it's not within the ballgame of the real estate developer, it's not within the ballgame of the municipality. And we've had a bit of a breakthrough on some ideas around that because we need to turn our cities into forests. Um, and, and there is amazing air quality improvements, direct and fast that uh, plants do. And, uh, and quality because now life, everyone has quality of life. And there's all these, I was just reading about, uh, impacts on, um, crime and violence correlated to air pollution. Right. Mm. So there's all these, there's health. And there's, there's all these externalized social costs as yeah. well that, that are exactly. trillions of dollars worth of cost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a huge, huge area of, of, of uh, insurance opportunity and you know, public expenditure opportunity, a lot of savings everywhere. Um, so if, because now we have air quality sensors that are very cheap and everyone can have that, um, there are probably ways in which we're gonna find a way of how to finance urban green infrastructure, which till now it's been very hard because it does have uh, operation and maintenance costs associated to it, but we need to link it to all the benefits of it. But that's just go to say is, in, uh, and I think that you, you know, mentioned Greta, um, it, uh, part of the message that, that she's able to get across is, is also part of, um, of my work, which is we come from, you know, we've introduced the metabolism of exogenous combustion, that that's, that's what we're, doing but really would make this planet healthy is photosynthesis and so we really need to switch back into behaving like like trees collectively um, yes exactly there's a a, there's there's a pretty hilarious i mean recently one of my friends and um a supporter of our project and uh, you know all around amazing guy jay kwan who's the founder of cosmos did a i think i i tagged you on this twitter thread he 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 asked twitter you know hey what are the best ideas for you know essentially reversing climate chaos um and people were you know throwing in ideas i chimed in there this guy you know basically said um well, there was a bunch of crazy stuff, geoengineering, giant mirrors to reflect the sun, all of this like insane stuff where I'm like, okay, come on folks. But you know, one of the things that struck, struck me was there was a comment, it might've even been Jaquan who was sort of like the, tech, the techno fix idea, which is you know, we need a power source strong enough and we need a catalytic process. And then we can convert atmospheric carbon into you know, sequestered stable carbon. And, and I was just like, uh, you know, energy source, sun, <laughs> catalytic process, photosynthesis. I mean, it's really, uh, it's really a structural socioeconomic change we need. Yeah. We don't need 
some crazy new technology. We right. Yeah, and and I think that's part of the humility that we need to always have in the technology space is that we're never going to be better uh, at at this than you know a, a four and a half billion year old organism. You know, a lot of the key technologies are already in place. This is what's made this 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 uh, planet behave like a Gaia organism. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's it. Uh, the best we can do is be inspired by it and emulate it and do a lot of you know biomimicry um, and understand how the natural system works because we're part of it, um, rather than trying to think that we can do a better job. Um, so it's about, it's about improving our socioeconomic capacity to to be part of a system right it's technology in service to that instead of instead of technology in service to like fixing a reductionist problem you know to, to leave that to to you know we sort of talked about this how do we keep ourselves as technologists from getting stuck into the mechanical reductionist uh, right trap Right, and and there's some framing there, so that's a really important thing. I think I hope listeners are sort of pulling that out as one of the themes of this conversation, which is, you know, um, what is the technology serving? You know, what are we concentrating our innovation on? Are we trying to sort of like fix atmospheric carbon levels as a as a as a singular problem where we're you know going to build a big machine and suck the <laughs> suck the carbon back out of the atmosphere. Well, maybe that's a part of it. I don't know if it is or it isn't. Um, but really, the question is, you know, how do we harmonize our human social and economic relationships to be to, to have the emergent quality of our economy be drawdown, essentially? Yeah. Right? Yeah. What does that look like? What does just it's like it's a nature of our humanity to be re-sequestering carbon just as it was for 250 years or so that it was the nature of our human relations that we were you know putting carbon into the atmosphere mm-hmm. like that was just mm-hmm. the nature of things you know <laughs> if, if, you, if you were to if you were an extraterrestrial and you, you were to like zoom to Earth and you were just like watching that 250 year time frame, you might be like, oh, you know, that, like that's the purpose of humanity is to, to like create a greenhouse. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, no, no, I, I really think this is part of, uh, is part of a, a nice uh, globally designed purpose for us. And we're just, we're just here to start playing the game and, and putting our full self full self into it yeah i hope so um well thanks again for chatting and um i look forward to being in touch um i guess we'll be in touch next week about some of the details about upcoming collaboration yeah um, yeah we have we have exciting roadmap ahead do you want to leave listeners with any um you know links where they can tune in if they're if they get excited about this where could they plug in yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the the umbrella of our work is in our, uh, the Yale Open Innovation Lab website. It's openlab.yale.edu. Um, there's links to the different projects that we have there, the Energy Academy, uh, Open Solar, uh, which is a partnership with the, with the MIT Media Lab as well, uh, Open Climate, um, and the Collabathon um, uh, site it will launch it in five days, but it can be accessed in uh, 
collabathon with double-l.openclimate.earth. Uh, um, and then all the rules and all the processes and guidelines for it are there in registration forms. Um, and then if anything that I said resounded at, at a personal level, uh, my website is martinweinstein.com that uh, talks a bit more about things that I've, that I've done in the past and things that I did to insurance with art and other, other parts of my research. Um, and um, yeah, I think that everything that there will lead to other, other links that might be exciting. Fantastic. All right. Thanks great. so much. Thanks, Gregory. Have a great weekend and uh, look forward to our next uh, steps conspiring together for Onward. global transformation. Onward. I'm grateful.